In the meantime, if you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, take them out, turn them on, whatever you need to do, and join me in the little New Testament book of 2 Peter, the final chapter of 2 Peter, as we are concluding a sermon series that we have been in since the first of the year, titled Grounded and Growing, as we are hearing Peter's words of encouragement to the churches of his day that he had a relationship with as he is encouraging them to remain grounded in the truth and the knowledge of their relationship with Jesus Christ, and to grow up in that knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I am a people watcher. And when I'm out and about, especially in places where we do so much waiting, I oftentimes will watch the people that are around me. And it doesn't take very long to recognize that our culture has a favorite mechanism to help them in their waiting, their mobile device, right? You look and what you're seeing is there's actually now it's not just computers and everything else, but there's there's whole slews of um, videos that are out there from chiropractors and everybody else about how we are... Now, young folks especially are dealing with with a change in their posture from their necks because they're constantly doing this, and their heads are down. But we're spending so much time waiting, and we have this mechanism in in our hands that allows us to pass the time easily, whether it be making a phone call, maybe it's music plugging in our earbuds and just drowning out everything that's around us games on the phone, or even just flipping through social media or mindlessly looking through the headlines of whatever is available. But we love our mobile devices, and they are tools that we have embraced to pass the time in which we are waiting because there is so much of it. Our lives are lives that are, are full of waiting. We're waiting at doctor's offices. We're waiting in different places. We're waiting for our education to finish. If you're in high school and you're longing for that day, maybe it's your 16th birthday or you're longing for graduation, we're waiting for big events in our lives. And idly waiting is not something that's necessarily bad in the minor moments of our lives like when we're at the doctor's office. As a matter of fact, being a good steward of our time means that we should build margins into our days for rest and for pause and for interruptions as well. But waiting time for all of us is easily wasted time. And that becomes a problem when we zoom out to the broader timeline and stories of our existence as we see those bigger seasons of waiting, like waiting for my graduation, waiting for a promotion at work, waiting for a relationship to develop, waiting upon the Lord to show up to answer prayers. If we, want to des- if we desire a promotion at work, we're not going to sit around idly waiting for somebody to take notice of us. Instead, our waiting actually looks like something. It's not a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. As I perform the duties of my job with consistency, excellence, even going above and beyond that others might see, serving my coworkers and supervisors and employers to the best of my ability, I'm actively waiting as I am pursuing this broader goal. Peter is writing to each of us 
as we are act and encouraging us to actively wait for the day that has been promised throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord. And so here at the conclusion of his letter, he is exhorting us that waiting well for the one to come means working well in the world that is. Look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these, speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I am so grateful for the words of encouragement of the apostles, Peter among them. I'm thankful that 2,000 years ago, the believers in Peter's sphere of influence needed the same encouragement that I need today. Because, Lord, waiting is so hard. But knowing, Heavenly Father, that there is work to be done in the waiting a hastening of the day of the Lord as we don't sit idly, but Heavenly Father, we grow. I'm thankful that we are not alone. Not only because there are other brothers and sisters in Christ experiencing the same thing, but because, Heavenly Father, you have not left us without a helper. But instead, you have promised the Holy Spirit who equips and loves and walks with us so, Holy Spirit, would you now open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word? And would you encourage us that we might wait well for the one who is coming? And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Verse 17 and 18, which serve as the conclusion of the letter, is really the foundation and the major point of everything. And it's where the title for our series came from, Grounded and Growing. As Peter there concludes by saying, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. He says throughout his letter that Peter is writing to remind the people, the Christians, of what they already know to be true. To remind them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might fulfill what he says here. They might be stable in an unstable time. Peter knows, he's writing with a sense of urgency for two real reasons. One, he knows that his life is coming to an end. 
But second, he knows that there are those within the church who have risen up as false teachers who are wanting to disrupt the stable ground, the firm foundation that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to the Christians to stabilize them that they might not be tossed to and fro, that they might not be carried away with the error of lawless people, but also to encourage them to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the entire letter is a reminder and a call to them to be grounded in the grace that we have in Jesus Christ and to be growing in the grace of Jesus Christ as well. The verses that we've read, you'll notice in verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be dissolved, that assumes that he, we, that's, that's a flow of thought from where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, and if you were here last week as a way of reminder, I told you that really verse 2 is the theme verse or the, the thesis, if you will, that shapes the rest of the chapter in chapter 3 when he says, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The false teachers that Peter exposes in chapter 2 are those who questioned and then ultimately rejected what had been predicted throughout the Old Testament that the day of the Lord was certain. They question, hey, listen, if he was really coming, he would have already showed up. But instead, things are just keep going on and on. So it must not be true. They had rejected the idea of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they gave control of their lives to their own sinful desires. They were governed, he said, by the sinful desires. Knowing this, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and they will follow their own desires. When we reject the authority of Scripture and the truthfulness of God's Word, then we will be ruled and reigned by something else. And Peter is saying that these false teachers are ruled and reigned by their sinful desires. But Peter is saying that we must understand that Christ's return is imminent, that it was predicted by the Old Testament and so his argument carries into where we just picked off, picked up, that we are examining this morning, that he is seeking to encourage us while we wait for these things, the return of Jesus Christ. And so, in these verses, we see that we are waiting. I've titled this sermon, a big word, many of you are staring over my shoulder going, I don't even know if I know how to pronounce that. So I'm going to teach you a big theological term this morning, eschatological. One commentator said that the entire theme of 2 Peter is summed up in this phrase, eschatological ethics. The Greek word eschatos just simply means end, right? It's the last things. Ology is the study of. So in theology, there is a discipline called eschatology, the study of the end, the study of the last things. Every good story comes to an end. The end that we want is a happily ever after. Sometimes that comes. Sometimes there are series of stories in which they link together in installments, and each installment, installment brings us some kind of a false ending, a cliffhanger, if you will. And as we are working our way through that story, we are longing and looking forward to that final end, that happily ever after that we are hoping is coming. Peter tells us that we are waiting for the end of the story that God is writing. 
and that ending is coming. Three times in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14, he tells us we are waiting. Verse 13, we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, we are waiting, waiting for God to finish the story that he has been writing since the beginning of the book of the Bible. We have received the promises of the Lord, and we are anticipating the fulfillment of those promises. As we experience now only in part what God has promised, we will fully experience someday in the future when Christ returns. Pastors and theologians talk about this as you read the New Testament as a tension between the already of what we have in Christ and the not yet of what is promised in Jesus Christ. It's beautifully seen in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. There Paul talks about this in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You hear the past tense of that? You were sealed in the Holy Spirit. And he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul talks about how we who are in Christ have been raised with him and are, present tense, seated with him in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up in heaven this morning. I woke up in my bed. And I will wake up in my bed until that time is fulfilled. And yet, Paul is able, because of his certainty in the promises of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare that truth as though it is real in this moment. And we live in the tension between the promise that has been made and the promise that will be received at some point in the future. And so Peter wants to encourage us in this waiting. The question, though, is what are we waiting for? right? He says you're waiting three different times. What we are waiting for is the purification and the restoration of the world that will be brought about by the arrival of God in all his glory. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the purification and the restoration of the world that will be brought about by the arrival of God in all his glory. With all the language that Peter uses in these verses and the verses that are before it about fire coming down, about the heavens dissolving, about heavenly bodies melting away, it can be easy for us to misinterpret what Peter is saying. And we can instead interpret his message as a message of destruction, of God coming in and taking the world that he has created and crumpling it up as a failed rough draft and throwing it in the garbage and starting all over. And that may be the perspective that you have had of what is coming in the end and what is promised about God's coming is that God is just going to do away with his creation and he's going to start from scratch. And we're going to exist for all of eternity in some unknown alien universe that we don't have a full understanding of yet. But that's not Peter's message. How do I know that that's not Peter's message? Because that's not the Bible's message. And Peter is writing in the context of the rest of Scripture. And so we have to take into account what all of Scripture says so that we can fully understand what Peter is saying. 
Peter is saying that we are waiting for the purification of the world. And the instrument that God will use and that Peter foresees is fire. Fire is destructive. Fire can destroy lives, families, and take away things that we cherish that have memories tied to it. But at the same time, fire purifies. And where and when there is a controlled burn of fire, it has the ability to eliminate everything that shouldn't be there so that what should can grow freely. And so as Peter anticipates a day of fire coming, what he has already said is the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and all the evil of the world that is done in the world is going to be exposed before the Lord. And so the fire of the arrival of God on earth is one that purifies And we see God's coming throughout Scripture described as a coming in fire and the melting of the world. Psalm 97, verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. When you go and you read Exodus chapter 20 that has the great command or the Ten Commandments, you'll find that the people, as they're gathered around Mount Sinai, look and the mountain looks as though it's on fire in the presence of the Lord. God's presence is a presence that purifies, but at the same time, it is a presence that not only purifies by fire, but renews and restores as well. The world that God declared to be very good in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is not a world that he's going to crumple up and throw in the garbage at the end of Revelation 21. It is a world that he cares for. It is a world that he sent his son Jesus Christ into to rescue and redeem. It is a world that, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, is crying out and groaning under the weight of our sins, awaiting the arrival of the sons and daughters of God. The world is collateral damage to our sin. And the world that God created is a world that he has sent, has sent his son into to rescue and redeem and restore. And so God's arrival purifies the world of all of evil and of all of evil's effects. And when that happens, what we find then in a world purified of evil is a world like you and I have never experienced. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what a creek or a river sounds like that's not affected and tainted by sin. We don't know how an animal interacts with humanity in a world unaffected and tainted by sin. Adam and Eve were the only two that experienced it. And when our sin came into the world, cursed is the ground because of you is what God said. And so we don't know what life in this world looks like without everything groaning under the weight of sin until God purifies the world of its existence. And experiencing a universe without sin is an eternal adventure. I encourage you, I don't have time to dig into it, but I encourage you to go and read some of C.S. Lewis's works. The Great Divorce being one, and the end, the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia as well, where his characters experience heaven. And what they find when they get there is a world that reminds them only vaguely of this one because it seems so much more real. That is what we are looking forward to. That is what we are awaiting. And so, this matters 
when we understand that this is what God's arrival will do. Because when we accept that this is the teaching of Scripture and that God is working to purify and restore this world, then we are going to live differently in it. If we think that this world's just going to be burned up and thrown away at the end, then we're just going to say, well, who cares about it anyway? Right? Who cares how we use it? Who cares how we abuse it? Who cares what we do to the world? But if God is seeking to restore it, to purify it, and if what Revelation says is true, that God will one day live on it, then the very same command that God gave to Adam in the garden that we work and keep the world still applies today. And if there is anyone who should care about the condition and the state of this world, it's not, it is Christians. Because our theology is not a, I'll fly away and leave it all behind, but I will live here forever. And so I will be careful and I will be concerned about this world and how it is used by man. We are waiting, but we are to work in the waiting as well. Eschatological is the study of the end. We're waiting the story that God is, the end of the story that God is writing. Ethics is what we do, right? Ethics is how we live. It's how we make our decisions. It's how we decide the actions that we are going to take. So Peter says, since we know that an end is coming, since we're waiting for God's ending to come, and we're waiting for the purification and the restoration of the world, how should that change our lives? That's what he's asking in these verses. Since we know that this is true, how should that then shape the lives that we live? And so Peter gives a command in verse 14, be diligent. That means work hard. That means be persistent. That means do something. To be found by him. Christ is coming back. If like the false teachers, we say, nah, it, I don't believe that it's going to happen, then it doesn't matter how we live our lives because we're not going to be found in anything by anyone. But just as my wife has a rightful expectation that because I love her and I am committed to her, she has a rightful expectation that she can come home and not find me with another woman, so then God, who we love and who we are committed to, and who we want to honor and express our love to, and who has promised that he is coming, has a rightful expectation of how he might find us. And as an expression of our love for him, we must therefore then be diligent, working in the waiting, not for our salvation, but from our salvation, to live lives that reflect and honor and glorify the Lord. We should be those who not only experience God's love for us in Jesus Christ, but express that love in return to him and to those that are around us. Not so that we can earn our salvation, but so that we can be faithful to show forth his glory and live for his pleasure. And so Peter gives us some instances in this as we are waiting of things that should characterize our life. Verse 11, we are to be, that we ought to live lives of holiness. The biblical term for holiness simply means set apart. Lives that are distinct and different. Something that was holy was something that was set aside that might be like anything else, 
right? You and I have bowls, pots, pans that we use in our, in our kitchens all the time. But there were certain bowls that were used only in the temple and in the tabernacle for special purposes for the worship of the Lord that were not to be tainted by just average everyday use, but they were to specifically be used for the glory of the Lord. Those were items that were holy and were set apart. And so we as Christians, those who are the children of God, should live lives that are set apart from the ways of the world. We should be pursuing lives that reflect the holiness of God, the distinction of God. There is only one characteristic of God in all of Scripture that is ever elevated to the highest power. It's only one characteristic of God that is repeated three times in a row in Scripture. He is not love, love, love. He is not wrath, wrath, wrath. He is only ever holy, holy, holy. There is no one like God. That's what that means. There is no one that can compare to him. There is no one that exists in the same category of God. He is uniquely holy. The pastor here in town, Dr. Larry Robertson, describes God's holiness like the color white. Or if you look at white light. If you take a prism and you hold it up to the sun, and the sunlight, the white light hits it, what happens? It turns into a rainbow, and you get to see all of the colors in existence. God has many different attributes, his love and his grace, his, his eminence, his sovereignty, his control. All of those different things are unique characteristics and attributes of God. When you take all of those like a rainbow in reverse back through a prism, and you combine them all together, what you find is God, because no one else shares all of the attributes of God. That is his holiness. And we are to be those who are holy, Jesus said, as your heavenly Father is holy. Peter says it, go back to 1 Peter, and you'll find there that he calls us to there to lives of holiness, lives that are set apart for God. Not set apart for my own pleasure, not set apart for my own wants. My life now belongs to God. And not me, and not this world. Not only are we to pursue, and we are to pursue the holiness. That's really interesting in the Greek. Peter says in that verse that you are to live lives of holiness and godliness. Holiness and godliness are actually in the plural. Which sounds really awkward in English. right? You are to live lives of holinesses and godlinesses which means this looks like a whole bunch of different things. There's not any one specific way to apply a pursuit of holiness or a pursuit of godliness. But like godliness that Peter exemplifies in chapter 1, godliness is simply a life that reflects God, that longs for the things that God longs for, that wants the things that God wants. And that only comes through spending time with God in his word. The only way I will ever know what my wife longs for and wants and live a life that then works to reflect that, pursue it, and everything else is if I take the time to know her wants and desires first. And so if we want to live lives that reflect God's heart, God's desires, God's wants, then we must pursue God 
who is available to us through his son, Jesus Christ. In fellowship with him and with his spirit and with his word and with one another. We are also, if you look on down, we are to be diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish. We are to endeavor to be found by God as pure. Without spot or blemish takes you back to the Old Testament language that was utilized and was, uh, that was the standard of sacrifices that were offered in the temple. That the lambs that were lambs that were qualified to serve as a sacrifice for our sins were to be without spot and without blemish. And so we are called by God to be those who are without spot and without blemish. But here's the thing. Even Paul says in his letters that he still struggles with sin. And the truth and the beauty and the wonder of what the Bible teaches and what Scripture teaches is that we cannot accomplish spotlessness and blemishness with, on our own, but it has been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. And so it's Jesus Christ who washes us white as snow. It is Jesus Christ who forgives us of all of our sin. And so a life that is pursuing impurity, a life that is growing in purity, is a life that is lived in confession and repentance of sin. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, you and I will never come to a point or to a place this side of the return of Jesus Christ in which we will accomplish perfection. Jesus has done that for us. And we instead worship a God and respond to a God who freely forgives. And so we are called to be people who regularly, quickly confess our sins and receive God's grace in return. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. Repentance isn't merely the way into the Christian life. Repentance is the way of the Christian life. We are to be people who are quick to acknowledge the ways that we have failed and in doing so turn to God and receive from him what he has already guaranteed, which is Jesus. God never forgives begrudgingly, but willingly and freely. And we are also to be people of peace, people who trust in the Lord, who exist in a relationship with him. He says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish, to be pure and at peace. That peace comes ultimately in a relationship with Christ, the Prince of Peace, who has accomplished our salvation, who has accomplished our forgiveness, who has accomplished our reconciliation with God because he has overcome our sin on our behalf. And we are to be people who are patient. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation just as Paul counts it. The truth of the matter is God is the one who is bringing the end into reality. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Peter uses this language, if you back up just a little bit in verse 12, that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Wait a minute. I thought the day of the Lord was fixed. How is it that we can then be hastening the day of the Lord? I don't know. Be real honest. I don't know. But Peter says somehow, as we are pursuing the Lord, maybe it's just, you know what, time seems to go really slow like we talked about last week. Time goes real slow when I'm bored. 
But when I'm actively working, it flies by. Maybe that's what it is. But maybe it is true that as we are pursuing God and godliness and as we are glorifying him in the world with our lives, as we are expanding his glory across this universe, across this earth, as the waters cover the seas is what the book of Hosea tells us, then we are bringing about, in some sense, the arrival of the Lord. And we are hastening the day of the Lord, but it is ultimately we have to rest that it is God's story that God is writing that he is working in his own time. You and I, brothers and sisters, are not working for our salvation, but are working from our salvation. And that is the message that Paul proclaimed. And just as a real quick aside, listen to what Peter says. Paul writes a whole lot of things that are real hard to understand. So if you've ever had trouble understanding Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, and some of Paul's deep theology and everything else, guess what? So did Peter. He was a backwoods fisherman without a high-level education, secondary education, and an MDiv or a PhD. And he acknowledges, you know what? A lot of the things that Paul writes, they are hard to understand. And because they are hard to understand, then evil teachers, false teachers, take only a little bit of what they understand, blow it out of proportion, just as they do the other scriptures. Don't blow past that. Peter has given an apostolic endorsement of the writings of Paul as scriptures. And scriptures, he told us earlier at the end of chapter one, are those messages breathed out by God. This in and of itself, just a quick aside, is to teach us that even the New Testament authors understood that what was being written down by the apostles and collected by the church was words breathed out by God equivalent with the Old Testament Scriptures. And what is it that Paul's message does? Paul's message is a message of peace accomplished on our behalf by Jesus Christ apart from any work of our own. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone for the glory of God alone not because of anything that I have done that I might boast, but instead because God has accomplished everything for me. And therefore, the life I live then is a pursuit of holiness and godliness and purity and patience is not a life that is meant to manipulate God to give me something that he isn't already giving me or willing to give me in Jesus Christ. It's an expression of my gratitude for the fact that he already has. And I want to live a life that shows forth his glory in the world. That is what working in the waiting looks like. And, Paul, and Peter ends his letter by pointing us to the object of our worship. His exhortation, be grounded that you not waver. Because life is hard and things are challenging. And you will be tempted to be carried away by false teachings and even your own heart as you question the reality of God. Where are you, God, when you're coming? So be grounded in the grace of the gospel and be growing in your understanding of that gospel so that you may grow up in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as you're waiting. But again, I'll ask you the question, what are you waiting for? Because what we are waiting for shapes the way in which we wait. One of my things that I have loved about watching from a distance the revival that has been, that has been taking place and came to a conclusion this last Friday at Asbury University 
many different things, but one of them is the nature of it. And there were critics who came and rose up and said, if this was a real revival, then what they would be doing is they would be standing up and they would be telling people that they needed to confess and repent and that they would be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. Last time I checked, revival means the, re- the reviving of something that once had life. Revival is for Christians. And what I have seen in the revival that has taken place there is the contentment, the willingness of people from around our nation to come and sit in the presence of God without an agenda. Not to stand up and say, look how bad our world is. Paul says, what do I have to do with the outside world? My mission is for the church and to preach the gospel and to confront the church. Brothers and sisters, we're not waiting for a what. Yes, we will one day get a world that is characterized by righteousness. Verse 13, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But let us remember, before righteousness is a thing, righteousness is a person. What brings about the new heavens and the new earth? What brings about the purification of this world and the restoration of this world is the arrival of God in Jesus Christ. You see, my problem with many American evangelicals when we talk about revival is we're really praying. When we pray for revival, we're praying for a mechanism of social change not for a deeper love of Jesus. And we would be content if our culture changed. Revival is so that the church will change. And that starts when we catch a vision for what we want. And when what we want is more of Jesus, everything else will fall into place. And so Peter ends not by pointing us to what is coming, but who is coming as he ends to Christ be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He doesn't leave us longing for a what. He leaves us pointing us to a who. The one who changes everything. And this changes everything everything. Brothers and, Jesus, or brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not enough for you, then the Christian experience and the Christian life will be horrible. And it will be wasted. But when a deeper relationship with Christ is what we want, then we will find Christ In the celebration, we will find Christ in the struggle. We will find Christ in the suffering. And we will wait well with Him until the day when we see Him face to face. And all things end in every knee bowing, and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So wait well, brother and sister in Christ. Fall in love with Jesus and pursue because of what He has done for you and what He's done in you lives of holiness, godliness, purity, 
and peace. Hold fast. Be grounded in the grace and the truth of the gospel. And grow in the beauty of the grace and truth of the gospel until he comes again.